turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. It'll be a moment, a short moment before we get there. I kind of have some opening thoughts as usual, try to frame this. Still in our series on commitment. We'll be there for a few more weeks. I don't know about you guys, but I'm having a good time considering all the different ways in which commitment uh, works its way out in the body of Christ. And as uh, we start moving from this point forward, each week is just going to become more and more practical. And so I'm uh, looking forward to that. But before we go any further, let's uh, ask the Lord's blessing. All right? Heavenly Father, we come to you in the mighty name of Jesus. And we can come with boldness and confidence because you've invited us to come into the throne room of grace in that way. Because we are accepted not on our own merits or our own worth, but on the merits of Christ. His perfect righteousness, his perfect works are ours. They've been given to us as a gift through faith, by grace. And so we come here today, Lord, in that position. That is our position before you. We are loved. We are accepted because we are in Christ. Nothing can change that. Nothing can snatch us out of his hand. Thank you that that is our hope and that is our confidence. Thank you that nothing can separate us from your love, Father. Worship you. Praise you. Thank you that you've given us your word so that we can learn more about you and <clears throat> how we can walk in obedience. Thank you that you've given us your Holy Spirit so that we have the power to do it. And so I pray your blessing on our assembly today. I thank you for the faithful and generous gifts of your people as we collectively work together to support what you're doing here financially. Thank you, Father, for how you provide for all of our needs, and thank you, Lord, that we're able to give back to you in faith and in gratitude. And so we, we say thank you, Lord, for how you always take care of us and you always provide for us. And I thank you for the generosity of your people who have given to your work today, and I pray a special blessing over the, over the tithes and offerings, Lord, that you would <clears throat> receive that as worship to you and that you would multiply that, and that you would use it for the furtherance of your kingdom and your work here in Napa and beyond. So I ask, O oh God, that you would bless this time and that you would be glorified. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen and hallelujah. All right. So... Over the last few weeks... We've been talking about commitment. You know that by now. We've been talking about commitment in the church. We started by talking about Jesus' commitment to his church, how much Jesus loves the church. The church is essential to Jesus. We talked about the church's commitment to Jesus. And we talked about the church's commitment to itself. So we as the church are committed to Jesus. He is the the head, and we are the body. Remember that? But we talked about how the body is committed to the body, that we all come together collectively as one in Christ, and we work together in unison to serve the body. So we're committed to that. Last week, we talked about the pastor's commitment to the church, to the body of Christ. And so I just want to say at this point, if you've missed any of those sermons, Please go back to YouTube, Calvary Napa. It's on YouTube. It's our YouTube channel. And watch those sermons. It's important to me. It's important to us and the elders here that we're all on the same page with these things. And so every, every week when I show up with a message, it's, it's deliberate. It's intentional. It's something as the, as the pastor of the church, I'm, I'm wanting to communicate to you as I seek to lead the church well. And so... Uh, it's always important that we are together on this journey and that we're all hearing it. Amen? There's amen number one. And so um, it's important, all right? So go back and watch those sermons if you've, if you've missed them. Well, today we're going to talk about the church's commitment to church discipline. And so it's kind of a, it's a heavy topic, church discipline. Um, 
the church's commitment to church discipline. And so, subtitle, get right or get out. I'm just kidding. <laughs> Trying to balance it here with a little bit of lightheartedness, all right? And so, you know, church discipline. Perhaps you have never even heard of that. Maybe you think, what in the world is that? And in a nutshell, it is the means that Jesus has given to the church to try to maintain and preserve holiness and purity in the church. Uh, we're going to work through this thoroughly, but just on the front end, it's, it's the idea that there are standards, there are expectations that Jesus has given to his church, and there is basically a system of confrontation that Jesus has given us in Matthew 18. We'll look at that. And if a person is absolutely unwilling to hear it, unwilling to respond, unwilling to repent at a certain point, they're put out of the church. And I know that sounds crazy, that sounds harsh, but we're going to see that it's, it's, it's a loving thing and it's something that Jesus has given to his church for a purpose. And anything that he gives to his church is good. And so uh, we're going to work through all of that. But it, and it's the church's responsibility. That's why I say it's the commitment of the church. We're going to see that it's not just something that the pastors do. It's, it's something that the whole body of Christ plays a part in. And so it's uh, very practical, and this is, I think, uh, an interesting, fascinating topic, topic to consider because it's something that is rarely, maybe even never, preached on or spoken about in most churches. Um, many churches, if they even know what church discipline is, they would never actually carry it out. They would never enact it. Because in all honesty, it goes against all conventional wisdom. If the goal is to grow the church numerically, then the last thing anybody in their right mind is going to do is church discipline. Get up in front of the congregation and publicly remove someone from membership. Uh, most people hear that and think that would be the best way to kill the church. So it would seem, so we would think, for going by man's wisdom. But the thing is, is that Jesus is the head of the church, right? Haven't we seen that from the scriptures? And Jesus is the Lord of the church. Jesus is the Lord of the church. So we are bound. We are bound by scripture and bound by conscience to obey his commands, right? And so if Jesus says this is something that his church is to do, to faithfully follow out, then we must. And we must trust that though it would go against all conventional wisdom, that he's going to bless it. And Jesus will actually grow his church. Because we're not really looking for breadth. We're looking for depth. Right? We want to go deep. We want to be the real, the real deal. Which means really doing what Jesus said we ought to do. And trust that if we take care of that, if we go deep, if we take seriously his commands, he'll take care of the breadth. Right? He'll, he'll spread it out. That's his business, though. It's not ours. You follow me? It's not our business to try to grow Jesus' church. He'll do that. Our business is to go deep and to worship him and to serve him and to obey him. And so holiness, it has always been a command and a concern for God's people. It's just always been that way. I don't know about you, but when I first came to the, the saving knowledge of Jesus, man, I hungered and thirst for righteousness. I mean, it was like, oh, I, it was just new. It was different. I was not a righteous man at all. The, my past life, my, my life before Christ was anything but godly. And so when God changed my heart and made me a new creation, all of a sudden I yearned for righteousness and holiness. You know, and unfortunately, as the years go by, you get kind of used to that and you forget what it used to be like before Christ. And in some ways, I feel like that hunger and that thirst almost begins to, to die down as it would seem. And so that's something that we, we want to have God stir up regularly. We are to be a people who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Amen? We want to be a holy people. That is what God wants, and that's what God commands. That's always been God's concern. Deuteronomy 14.2 it says, for you are a holy people to the Lord your God. 
The Lord has chosen you to be a people for Himself, a special treasure above all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. That's how God sees His redeemed people, a special, a peculiar, a holy people, His own special treasure. 1 Peter 1.13 says, Rest your hope fully on the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, not conforming yourselves to the former lust, as in your ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, what? You also be holy. You also be holy in all your conduct, because it is written, Be holy, for I am what? Holy. He's holy. He's holy, and he expects his people to be holy. And so that's, that's the, the goal of the church, is to be a holy church. Second Peter 2, verse 9 says, You are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, his own special people, a holy nation, that we may proclaim the praises of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light who were once not a people, but are now the people of God. So that, that has been God's goal. That remains God's goal. He is calling people out of darkness and into the light. He is calling people into His church, and He expects His church to reflect His holy character and nature. That's what He expects. It's not a suggestion. It's not a recommendation. God takes deadly seriously preserving a holy church. And so we've got to be committed to that. Oh, that God's people would reflect His holiness. We must. God insists. And Jesus has given us a mechanism within the church to stir up and preserve holiness. And it's called church discipline. And there are at least eight texts in the New Testament that highlight some aspect of church discipline. I didn't even realize that. I thought there was just a couple and so don't worry, we're not going to look at all eight. Uh, examine a couple of texts on this, um, especially 1 Corinthians 5, as I've already said. We're going to look at that. And so this is all throughout the pages of the New Testament. It's an important topic. And so we're going to look at 1 Corinthians 5. What we need to know about Corinth, if you could sum up the church of Corinth in one word, I would use the word chaotic chaos. That was what was going on in the church of Corinth. The church was plagued with sectarianism. They had groups, little fan clubs within the church with their own personal leader of the club. Well, I follow Apollos, or I follow Peter, or I follow Paul, or the ultra-spiritual people followed Jesus. And so, it, you know, right out in the opening pages of the, the letter, he, he addresses that. And then it goes into sexual immorality in the church, lawsuits, the Christians were suing each other, divorce, idolatry, abusing the Lord's table. People, you know, they, when they did the Lord's Supper, they used wine, and people were coming and drinking all of the Lord's Supper, you know, wine and getting drunk. And then there were other people who were coming in that weren't even taking the Lord's Supper because somebody drank all the wine. And so, you know, that's, that's chaos, all right? People were abusing the spiritual gifts. People were denying the resurrection. I mean, on and on it goes. It, it was a wild thing happening there in Corinth. And that's, that's, so that's the letter we're looking at today. So Paul writes this highly corrective letter to set the church in order. That's Paul's goal in writing 1 Corinthians, is to take a church from chaos and to set things in order. And in this letter, this whole chapter, chapter 5, is given to set forth church discipline as, a, as one of the means in which to set things in order. So with that as our context, let's go ahead and look at 1 Corinthians chapter 5. And in fact, I'd like to just go ahead and read it. It's 13 verses. <clears throat> Why don't we stand? I'll read uh, for us 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Paul, speaking by the Holy Spirit, says, It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and such sexual immorality as is not even named among the Gentiles, 
that a man has his father's wife, and you are puffed up and have not rather mourned that he has done this deed, he who has done this deed might be taken away from among you. For I indeed, as absent in the body, but present in spirit, have already judged, as though I were present, him who has done this deed. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, when you are gathered together along with my spirit, with the power of the Lord Jesus Christ, deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of the flesh that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Your glorying is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Therefore, purge out the old leaven that you may be a new lump, since you are truly since you truly are unleavened. For indeed, Christ, our Passover, was sacrificed for us. Therefore, let us keep the feast, not with old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote to you in my epistle not to keep company with sexually immoral people, yet I certainly did not mean with the sexually immoral people of this world, or with the covetous, or extortioners, or idolaters, since you would need to go out of the world. But now I have written to you not to keep company with anyone named a brother who is sexually immoral, or covetous, or an idolater, or a reviler, or a drunkard, or an extortioner, not even to eat with such a person. For what have I to do with judging those who are outside? Do you not judge those who are inside? But those who are outside, God judges. Therefore, put away from yourselves the evil person. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. So in these 13 verses, we're going to look at four, four points as we work our way through this text verse by verse. I want to help us understand what this is, church discipline, what it's for, what's the end goal, why is it good. Uh, I want us to have a full understanding of this because I assure you that there's going to come a time where we're going to have to do this in this church. And if, if this is something that you believe and you feel compelled that you must be obedient to, it's something that will happen in here. And, you know, I've heard pastors say, rule of thumb, you don't ever want to do it before you've taught on it because it's a hard thing for people to understand. And though many in here may be sitting here thinking as I'm teaching this, yes, this sounds good, this makes sense, I understand it, it's biblical. The day that we have to do it, people are going to be up in arms about it a little bit. You know what I mean? And I understand. And so it's important to me as the pastor that we understand to the best of our ability what the Word of God actually says about it. Amen? And why, why we must be obedient to our Lord's command. So the first thing that we see in our text here, in verses 1 and 2, is a rebuke against boastful tolerance and celebration of sin. Paul condemns the fact that they are boasting and celebrating this heinous sin in the church. And so the first thing we see in verse 1 is a, the shocking presence of sin. Verse 1, it is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and such sexual immorality as is not even named among the Gentiles, that a man has his father's wife. So Paul says it is actually reported. That, that just, you, you just feel the shock in that. I have actually heard that this is happening in your church. I cannot believe this. And so he was shocked to discover that there was immorality in the church. I love that. Paul expected that the church was a holy place, a holy people who fought the good fight, who worked hard, who labored hard to be pure, to walk in the light even as our Lord is in the light. And so he said, man, I can't believe it. It's actually been reported to me that this sin is going on in the church. It should not be. And he says, not only that, this is sin that is not even named among the Gentiles. Basically saying this is the kind of sin that would make a pagan blush. I mean, it's shocking 
It's unbelievable. And what is it? A man has his father's wife. So apparently this would be the guy's stepmom is what most people understand this to be. Now, this is a real church in a real place at a particular point in time. And there was a, a, a brother in the church who had actually fallen into this kind of sin, that he was having sexual relations with his stepmom. And that's bad enough, but you know what? The church was pretty okay with it. I mean, that's, that's a shocking thing is it, to consider, isn't it? And so Paul is like, what is going on here? What are you guys thinking? So verse 2, Paul says, And you are puffed up, and you have not rather mourned that he who has done this deed might be taken away from among you. So Paul says, you're puffed up about it. Now, this is biblical language for pride, arrogance. You got your chest bowed out, you know, arm, shoulders back. I mean, you just, you feel good about yourself. You know, sometimes we talk about a person's head is pumped up, right? Um, they, they just think too highly of themselves. That's, that's the kind of language. This kind of sin is happening in your church, and you just think that you guys are great. You are progressive, I mean, you are cutting edge. You are tolerant. Look at us. You can just come here and come as you are. We just, you know, we're loving, we're accepting, and that's all bad. Paul says that you, you should not be that way. Now, this kind of, I have noticed this. You see this kind of behavior outside of the church, uh, especially when it pertains to, like, um, I'm going to hit a hot-button hot topic here in the culture right now. Transgender children, when you see, quote-unquote, when you see kids that are maybe going through something like that and their parents seem to be the ones that are kind of pushing it along, oh, man, the, the pride that the parent exudes about themselves, you know, they are just, man, they are hip. They are with it. They are just so proud of themselves for encouraging or pushing their kid to go this direction, and you can just smell it, and it's sick, you know, and that kind of stuff exists in the world, but man, that was happening in the church, that was happening in the church, heinous sin in the church, and people just thought, we are just so accepting, we are just so tolerant, and Paul said, that cannot be, he said, you should not be proud of that, you should be ashamed, and you should be grieved. You should be grieved, he said, because your brother might be taken away from among you. So either taken away, I'm assuming, in the sense of being destroyed by his own sin and taken out, or being taken out of the church by way of church discipline, or both, right? We don't play around with sin. Sin will turn and will destroy us. We understand that. Paul said, your brother is in danger right now. He's going to be taken away from among you. And you got to treat it that seriously. you got to treat it that seriously. Your brother, his sin is destroying him, and you are just so satisfied with yourself. That ought not be. When there is sin in the camp, it has to be dealt with. Never celebrated. That ought to be obvious. God has dealt harshly with sin amongst His people throughout history. Anybody here familiar with the story of Achan in Joshua chapter 7. You remember Joshua was called to command God's people as the commander of the army of Israel. And they went into Jericho and they had that mighty victory. Remember? God showed out. And they marched around the city. The walls fell down. They went in and they stormed the city and took it. And God commanded them, you are not to take any of the spoils of war for yourself. All of that which is taken is to go into the treasury of the house of the Lord. But Achan took some of the spoils of war and buried it underneath his tent. And so the next time there was a battle, they thought, man, we had such a crushing victory at Jericho. We're going to go right into Ai, and we got this. We only need a small detachment of troops. No big deal. And they went in there, and they got wiped out. They said, God, what is going on? What happened? And God revealed to them that there was sin in the camp and God's hand of blessing had been removed from his people. And God exposed that sin and they had to deal very harshly with Achan and his family. See, sin doesn't just affect the person, it affects everyone around him. It's a ripple effect. It goes out. And we know this. We know this. Our sin doesn't just affect us. 
and those who are closest to us, their sin doesn't just affect them, it affects us, doesn't it? And so sin affects the whole church. And so it's serious business. We all know the story of Ananias and Sapphira in Acts chapter 5. The church was in its infancy stage. And the church was being very generous. People were selling their goods, their belongings, possessions, and giving the proceeds to the church to take care of the poor and the needy. And Ananias and Sapphira sold their estate. They kept some of the money, and then they gave the rest, which is fine. They could have done that. They didn't have to sell their estate and give any of the money. But they, what they did was they were hypocritical about it. They were like, we're giving you all of the money. Look at us. But they only gave some. They lied. It was hypocrisy. They wanted to appear, appear a certain way. And God condemned them both for that. They lied to the Holy Spirit, Peter said. And they were, they were taken out, dropped down dead, and carried out. God was deadly serious about preserving purity in that infant church. And there was no place for hypocrisy. Now, has God changed? Is God a different God today? No, he's the same yesterday, today, and forever, right? And so what he was serious about then, he's serious about now. And so we have to take it that seriously. And the Bible has prescribed a method of dealing with persistent, unrepented sin. And I, I want to use that phrase. That's, that's really what we're getting at here. It's recalcitrance, obstinance, it's hard-heartedness. Just an unwillingness to own it, an unwillingness to accept it, an unwillingness to turn from it. I mean, we all struggle, do we not? We all sin daily. I mean, we just do, but we're grieved by it. We, we, we confess our sin. He's faithful and just to forgive us our sin. We press on and we try to keep moving forward. It may be, you know, two steps forward, one step back. It might be one step forward, two steps back, but I mean, we just keep moving, right? Seven times the righteous man falls and what? He gets back up. He gets back up. But that's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about someone who insists on having it their way, and they will not listen, not to God, not to the pastors, not to the brothers and sisters of the church. And there comes a point in time where that has to be dealt with. And so that leads us to the second point. This is the call for church discipline. Paul instructs them to take it to that Take it there. And so verse 3, Paul says, For I indeed am absent in the body, but present in spirit, and I have already judged, as though I were present, him who has done this deed. So Paul says, I'm not there physically, but I don't need to be. He says, I already know enough and have judged the man's guilt. Now this may be confusing to us because we are so used to hearing, judge not, right? Judge not. Don't ever say anything negative about my sin, or else you're judging me. And that, that's, man, that has to be, that verse is more popular than John 3.16. I mean, the world, people know that verse, and they love it, because they misunderstand it, and they misapply it. Now, to be sure, we are not the judge. God is the judge, and He judges in an ultimate sense. He is the one who condemns. He is the one who gives life, right? And we know that. We must be careful not to judge the motives of people's hearts. And that's something we can fall into. I know why you did that, because I know how you are. I know what you're like. I know what you were thinking when you did that. See, that's the kind of judging. We don't want to fall into that, because we are not the discerner of people's hearts. We don't know what they were going through, or what was really going on, or what they were thinking, or what led to that, per se. We have to be careful against judgmentalism. Spiritual superiority. I would never do such a thing. I can't believe you would do that. You know, but, and, and or getting caught up in things that are very, very trivial. You know, I, I attended a church for a time. It had to have been the most conservative church in that town. Like, ultra, ultra conservative. And all the women wore head coverings. And men were not even allowed on the stage if they didn't have a tie on. And, I mean, I could go on and on. It was like hardcore, Mount Calvary Baptist Church. And um, I remember I had a friend who came in, a female, and she was wearing blue jeans. And I just saw one of the other women looking at her with disgust. Just, And I was like, God, man, come on. That, that, that is not good. You know, that, that's what people kind of expect 
to get when they come into a church, unfortunately. And it shouldn't be that way. And so that does exist throughout the, the world and in you know, certain churches. We have to be on guard against that. That's judgmentalism. And uh, you know, holding people to arbitrary standards that even the Bible does not set. And so we've got to be on guard against that. But we are, we are regularly called to judge actions in the church. We're to call sin, sin. And we're to hold our brothers and sisters to a certain standard. Not from a heart of judgmentalism, but a heart of love and concern and compassion. Right? And so, um, we're going to talk more about that. But Paul goes on to describe now for us the kind of authority that must be wielded against that kind of sin. Right? There is, a, there is an authority that exists in the church. There is an authority that we possess that has been given us by Jesus to try to hold people to a standard and help encourage righteousness in the body of Christ. And so Paul will then go on to the severe consequence that follows that judgment. When a person is put out of the church, what is really going on there? Is it just the fact that they got kicked out of the church? Is that somehow supposed to do something? Because in the day and age we live, there's churches everywhere. They could just get kicked out of this church and go to another church, right? So what is it exactly about this that affects or could affect change in a person? Because there's something much deeper going on here, a very deep and spiritual reality that Paul gives us insight into. So first, let's look at this in verse 4. He says, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, when you are gathered together. All right, so note that there, gathered together, the assembly of the saints. Along with my spirit and with the power of the Lord Jesus Christ, deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. So now this language right here harkens back to the instructions that Jesus gives on church discipline in Matthew chapter 18. And especially as it pertains to the authority of Jesus in this discipline. So why don't you turn with me over to Matthew 18. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 18. Now I looked at these verses a couple weeks ago. We looked at them together. We're going to revisit this. And, and I was talking about Jesus' commitment to his church and how Jesus is committed to having a holy church. He's building his church, right? That was the first usage of the word church in the New Testament. I think it was Matthew 16. Now in Matthew 18, Jesus is preserving his church. Jesus wants a holy church. And so this is where we get the step-by-step uh, discipline method, if you will that Jesus prescribed to the church. It's good for us to understand this on a personal level. When we have brothers and sisters who have offended us, there, is, there are steps that we are to take individually when it comes to confronting sin. Gossip is not the solution. Just holding it in until we get bitter and resentful and maybe even blow up in a fit of carnality, that's not the solution. This is the solution. Right? This is what Jesus said. So, in Matthew 18, verse 15, he says, Moreover, if your brother sins against you, step one, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. And if he hears you, you have gained your brother. So that word gained there, that's like a financial term. It's used in business, and it's actually like when, when you have... Um, amassed a fortune or, or treasure, as it were. Jesus said that's what it's like. When you gain your brother or your sister, that, they are like treasure. Like when Jesus had 99 or 100 sheep and he lost one and he left the 99 to find the one because that one sheep was so valuable. It was like treasure. And so he says, step one, go and tell him his fault. If he hears you, you have gained your brother. But... If he will not hear you, step two, take with you one or two more that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word may be established. I want you to pay close attention to that by the mouth of two or three witnesses. Two or three, okay? So that's step two. If he won't hear you, then you have to bring some people along with you that will kind of affirm and confirm the accusation that you brought the first time. 
That's step two. Now, if he refuses to hear even the witnesses, step three, you take it before the church. Tell it to the church. That's step three. But if he even refuses to hear the church, step four, let him be to you like a heathen and a tax collector. Now, that might not make much sense to us in our day. I mean, they despised tax collectors. Okay, let them be like the IRS to you. Okay, maybe that we, can, we can relate with that a little bit. Sorry if we have any IRS workers in the room. It's all love. But, uh, yeah, it's put them out of the church. It's like, you know, the relationship is severed. It's severed. And so that is the four-step process that Jesus has given to deal with conflict, to deal with sin. And the end goal is not to just shun them and put them out so that you don't ever have to see them or deal with them again. That is, if that is the outcome, it, then there was a loss. There was a loss. Because if to, to win the brother or sister back is a gain, then to lose them forever is what? It's a loss. So that is not our goal here. Not even a little bit, right? And so, step two, it says you're to take two or three witnesses. Now this is going back to Old Testament court precedent, and that tells us something. It can't just be, you know, your word against their word. There, ha- there has to be credi- credible witnesses so that there's validity to the accusation being made, right? And so Jesus is serious about this. If we're going to have conflict, confrontation, it has to be a credible and a valid accusation. It can't just be hearsay or he, sa- he says, she said, right? There, has to be, uh, there have to be witnesses so that it can be established. Every word may be established, Jesus said. So it's a serious accusation. It's credible. It's valid. It would hold up in the court of law. And he says that there need to be two or three witnesses. I keep pointing that out. I want you to take note of that. Two or three witnesses. Now, in verse 18, he goes on. He says, Assuredly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven... And whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. That is like, what in the world does that mean? And what Jesus is essentially saying there is that that's the kind of authority that we have. Jesus has invested, he's given us this kind of authority to say that what we have deemed true here in the church, we have all of heaven's authority behind us. If a person has been bound under church discipline, it is binding with all of heavenly authority. And if they have been loosed from church discipline, then heaven agrees and celebrates with a hearty amen. It is loosed. That is the kind of authority Jesus has given his redeemed saints when they gather together. Remember, I said when you gather, when they gather together with the authority of Jesus, you have all of heaven behind you with that kind of authority. Now, Look at verse 19. He says, Again, I say to you that if two of you agree on earth concerning anything that they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered together in my name, I am there in the midst of them. Now, this is a very popular verse, and people will quote it frequently. Where two or more are gathered in my name, we're having church, right? That's usually the idea. Where two or more are gathered in our name, in my, in my name, there's like a special presence of Jesus there, and there's just sweet fellowship happening. It's a real sentimental kind of a verse, right? That is not what that verse means. It is clearly in the context of church discipline. The two or three that are gathered in Jesus' name are the two or three witnesses that been, have been called in to confront the sin. And then he says, whatever you loose is loosed in heaven. Whatever you bound is bound in heaven. He says, where two or three are gathered in my name to confront sin, I am there in the midst of them. So we, when we have to enact this kind of, this level of discipline, we are acting with heavenly authority given us by Jesus Christ himself. Jesus is in the midst, working and moving. Lord willing to break that recalcitrant heart to bring repentance to that sinner, that they would be humbled and that they would turn and that they would be restored. So believe me when I tell you, you don't want two or three gathered in Jesus' name. Amen? 
we don't, I don't want two or three gathered in Jesus' name for me, okay? And you don't either. And so um, it's serious and it's weighty. And Paul says that he's to be handed over to Satan. Now, what in the world does that mean? Well, that's not the only time Paul uses that phrase. In 1 Timothy 1, 19 through 20, Paul says, "...having faith and a good conscience, which some, having rejected concerning the faith, have suffered shipwreck, of whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I delivered to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme." One thing I want you to know is that in the New Testament, they name names. You know, people name names. That's something that we shy away from, and people will oftentimes get offended about. But John, Paul... People name names. And Paul said, Hymenaeus and Alexander, they've done great destruction in the church. They've been put out. I have handed them over to Satan. So evidently, when Paul was there in Ephesus, he began this church discipline. Paul left, and he left Timothy in charge as the pastor of Ephesus, and he commissioned Timothy to see this church discipline out to the end. Right? So that's, that's what's going on there. And that phrase, I deliver them to Satan. Now, what does that mean? I think Paul's giving us insight into the spiritual severity of church discipline. So Jesus is in the midst. There is that level of authority happening there. But then when a person is removed from covenant community, they are essentially losing divine protection. This is something that we don't emphasize enough in the modern church, especially the, the American church, is covenant community. We are very individualistic. It's all about my personal Lord and Savior. It's all about me and Jesus. Uh, we are Lone Ranger Christians. It's just the way that we are in the Western society. We have lost all sense of covenant community. But when we come together as members of one body, it is special. It is spiritual. It is powerful. And as we gather week by week, we are growing up into Him who is the head over the body, Jesus Christ, week by week by week, every Lord's Day. Something special, something powerful, something supernatural is happening in the body of Christ. We belong to something bigger and greater than ourselves. We belong to something so, so glorious, so beautiful, so holy, and we don't even realize it. But it's covenant community. It's a community that was bought by the blood of Jesus. It's a community that we've been invited into by God's grace. And when you are put out of that community, you are being released from, you are relinquishing the benefits of that covenant community, which is divine protection for one, because Satan can do nothing to a believer apart from God's permission, right? But... Here, that person is forfeiting that kind of protection and opening themselves up to full, the full force of satanic attack. It's kind of the idea. It's, it's a free-for-all. Satan's got free reign to come at you with, with everything that he's got. And so the goal, the hope, is that that person would get chewed up, spit out, and come running back to covenant community. Kind of like... Luke 15, remember that story? The prodigal of, or the story of the prodigal son. Sorry, I got that backwards, gave it away. The prodigal son. Remember that? He wanted his inheritance now. He said, I don't want to wait till you die. Give it to me now. It's kind of like saying, I wish you were dead. I just want my money. And he went out and he wasted it on prodigal living. Then he had to sell himself into slavery, essentially, and he had to work for this harsh master, and he, was, he couldn't even eat the food that the pigs were eating. And he wished that he could. I mean, it was bad. And then what, he came to his senses, it says. And he said, my father's servants live better than this. I'm going to go back, and I'm going to confess that I have sinned against him in heaven. And he went back, and the father was watching from a distance. And he saw the son, and he come running to him. Now, that was a cultural, that was a taboo. The elders of the community didn't run. It was very undignified. But the father didn't care about the cultural norms and mores of his day. He ran after his son because his son had repented. And they celebrated. Remember that? 
And Jesus said there's more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who has repented. And so that's what we're talking about. That's what we're going after here. That is the goal. That is the hope. And you have the authority of heaven and unbridled satanic attack. Man, that's scary, isn't it? Isn't that scary? But it is for good, ultimately, because the goal is brokenness and repentance and restoration. That's the goal. Discipline is ultimately a display of God's love. We know this, right? Hebrews chapter 12, it says in verse 5, My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor be discouraged when you are rebuked by him. For whom the Lord loves, he chastens, and he scourges every son whom he receives. If you endure chastening, God deals with you as sons. For what son is there among uh, whom a father does not chasten? But if you are without chastening, of which you have all become partakers, then you are illegitimate and not sons. What's he saying here? He's saying that if you are a child of God, God's going to discipline you as a child. We understand that as parents. We love our children. We want what's best for them, and we have to discipline them, right? The Bible says that if you don't, if you spare the rod, you hate your child. And so God's consistent with his word. He loves his children. He does not spare the rod. It says that if a child is not disciplined, he's an illegitimate child. It's not really that person's child. I'm not going to discipline some other person's kid. First of all, I'd end up in jail, but it'd just be weird. I'm not going to do it, and it ain't my place. But I will discipline my own children. Uh, you better believe I will. And so I love them. I want what's best for them. You know, I wasn't really disciplined growing up, and I know, uh, I know where that led me. And so uh, I, know, I know where that landed me, and so I'm, you know, I'm not going to repeat that mistake. I'm going to break that cycle. And so it's, it's love is what it is. It's what discipline is. Um, church discipline is for the good of the individual in question. It's for the good of the individual because we want to see that person turn, repent, and be restored. Uh, one, I mentioned there's several verses that kind of deal with this. Galatians 6.1, you don't have to turn there, kind of has a, kind of hits on one angle of this. It says, Brethren, if a man is overtaken or caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, considering yourself lest you also be tempted. All right, so if, if there is someone among, among us who has fallen, who has been taken or caught up in sin, the goal is to restore them with a spirit of gentleness, not a, you always do this, I knew you would do this, I guess I'll we'll help you back up, but I doubt you'll actually get it right this time. No, that's not the, the, the spirit. It's grace, it's gentleness. And he says, considering yourself lest you be tempted. What that means is, we're not oozing with, with ultra-spirituality or judgmentalism. You know, I could never fall, I would never fall, I can't believe you fell, but I guess we'll, we'll help you up. No, consider yourselves lest you be tempted, because you are just as susceptible as anyone else. Be careful if you think you stand, lest what? Lest you fall. And so that's the spirit. And so it's good for the individual in question because we want to see them restored and we want to do it with a spirit of gentleness. Church discipline is good for the health and the purity of the church. We have to pur purge the church. The church must maintain purity among its ranks. Church discipline keeps members accountable to live above reproach. You know, if we have to exercise church discipline, you can't help but think that's going to encourage or, or convict the rest of the church to want to be the real deal, right? Man, I don't want to have a plank in my eye. Do you? Jesus said, you're going to look at your brother or sister that's got a little speck in their eye, and you got a two-by-four sticking out of your face. Right? I don't want to be that guy. Do you? And so if I'm going to call my brothers and sisters to holiness, I better be holy. Right? That's the way this thing is supposed to work. And so church discipline encourages holiness and accountability for all of the body of Christ. Church discipline preserves the church's witness to those who are outside the church, right? We already got a bad enough rap outside the church. People are all too eager to try to say, 
oh, the church is a bunch of hypocrites, you know. I was going to a church one time, and I had a guy say that about the church I was attending. Oh, they're a bunch of hypocrites. I said, good, well, then I'll fit right in. You know, because, I mean, who am I? I'm, I'm nobody. It's not like I'm just the sterling example of what all Christians ought to be. You know, I mean, you, yeah, we are. And guess what? You are too. I mean, we all are, okay? And so we're, we're just messed up people doing the best we can. Amen? I mean, we're all just trying to do the best we can. Come on. And so we're trying to love and encourage and serve and help one another. But there's a standard to be sure. And so, you know, ultimately church discipline brings glory to God as it reflects His holy character. As it reflects His holy character. And that, that's, that's the goal, that's the desire. Uh, real quick, let's just move through this. A call to purge sin from the church. He says, your glorying is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Therefore, purge out the old leaven, that you may be a new lump, since you truly are unleavened. For indeed, Christ, our Passover, was sacrificed for us. Therefore, let us keep the feast, not with old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. So again, Paul's employing this biblical language. Um, leaven was uh, something that was, is used to, uh, it's, it, it's like yeast. It causes dough to rise. And so you had unleavened bread, which was just flat, kind of tough bread, and uh, leaven is also used as a type of sin. It was an illustration. So, so leaven would cause, uh, cause the, the dough to rise in the same way sin puffs us up and causes us to be head just swollen. It's, it's, it's that same idea. So uh, when they would have the Passover feast, they would... Uh, Passover was a seven-day feast. I'm sure you've heard of the Feast of Passover. It was a seven-day feast. But there were actually three feasts that took place during that seven days. So day one through seven, Passover. Day number two was a feast called Unleavened Bread. Day number three was a feast called First Fruits. So the Passover lamb would be sacrificed on day one. Day two was Unleavened Bread. And what people would do is they would go through their house and they would purge all the leaven out of the house, out of the cabinets, out of the refrigerator. I mean, they didn't have refrigerators then, but you get the point. And it was kind of like symbolic of, you know, the lamb has been sacrificed for the sins of our family. We're going to remove the sin. And uh, so Jesus, he died on the day that the lambs were to be slain for the nation. He was our Passover lamb. He was in, gra he was in the grave during the Feast of Unleavened Bread while the sin was being removed from the families, from the nation. And then he rose from the grave on the third day, which was the Feast of First Fruits, which was the first harvest. They were celebrating the, the early harvest of the year. He was the first to be uh, resurrected and glorified, and there would be many more to come. It's fascinating how Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection correspond with those, those uh, feasts. Well, that, that's the language that Paul is using here to illustrate this. Purge the sin. Purge the sin. Purge it out of the church. Now, we're not the sin police. I'm not a sin-sniffing dog. And I am not the Holy Spirit. And I'm not here to convict you of your sins. All right? And so I have found that if you have that kind of mentality and you're always trying to find it, you know, I mean, there's just no way to live, not for you or anybody else. But when God wants to expose something, man, it is going to be exposed. And you don't have to go looking for it. And you can hide it all you want to, but God sees, God knows, and God will reveal it. And so that's the idea. So it's like, hey, let us purge sin from our lives. Let us start right here. Let me start with me. You start with you. All right? Let the church be about the business of purging out the sin, removing the sin. For Christ was our Passover lamb. He was sacrificed. He died for us. So that we would flee from sin. Paul puts it like this, Romans 6, 1. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Absolutely not. Certainly not. Have we been set free from sin so we can just go on sinning all we want? I mean, some Christians treat it like that. Man, God loves to forgive and I love to sin. This is a great relationship. <laughs> well, that's not how this works. It's not. Paul says, 
How have you who died to sin, how are you going to go on living in it? Do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore, we were buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we should walk in the newness of life. So there it is, folks. Christ, our Passover lamb, was sacrificed for the sins of the world. And if you have trusted Christ, if you have believed in the finished work of Jesus on the cross, his perfect life, death, burial, resurrection, if you have trusted that in your own place, I'm not trusting in my works. On the day that I have to stand before God, I want to be able to say two things. All my sin I have cast onto this pile over here, and all of my works I have cast onto this pile over here. And I am running into the arms of Christ. He is my merit. I learned that from Pastor Dan several weeks ago. He quoted that guy from the pulpit here. Man, that has stuck with me ever since. I love that. On that great day, that's all I've got is Jesus and what he did. I got nothing good. I didn't contribute anything to my salvation but the sin that made it necessary. Jonathan Edwards. That's not mine either, but man, I love that. That's the reality. That's the reality. And so... Let us flee into the loving arms of Christ. Let us for, you know, forsake and abandon our sin. Let us not persist in unrepentant sin. You know, John, 1 John describes the Christian experience as one of sin, confess. Sin, confess. If we confess our sin, he's faithful and just to what? Forgive us our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. John said, if you say you have no sin, what? You're a liar. He was an old man at that point. You know, old folks, they just don't care. <laughs> he was the apostle of love. He was known as the, what happened to that? Somewhere along the way, he just was like the apostle of, I'm just tired and I'm just going to say it. You're a liar, okay? So confess, confess, confess continual confession. You know, I, I confessed Christ and repented of my sins on day one, and it has just been regular repentance ever since. We don't stop repenting. We continually turn back to the arms of our loving Savior. And so we're all in that place together. But you know what? If we name the name of Christ, that means something. There is a very real standard that comes with that, a very definite standard. Naming the name of Christ has to mean something or it means nothing. It means nothing. 2 Timothy 2.19, Paul says, Nevertheless, the solid foundation of God stands, having this seal. The Lord knows those who are His. And let everyone who names the name of Christ depart from iniquity. Amen. The Lord knows who are His. And if you are His, if you have taken the name of Jesus for yourself... If you are called Christian, depart from iniquity. Let us be a church that endeavors to be holy, just as our Lord and Savior is holy. Amen? And so, you know, if there ever comes a day where we have to do this, we will do it. We'll do it with a spirit of fear and trembling and holiness and reverence and love. But it's going to come. It's going to happen. And it's all our part to play. It's all our part. We're in this together. So let us run the race well. Let us cast off every sin and every weight that weights us down. Let's run the race with joy and with endurance. Amen? Let's strive for holiness. Let us depart from iniquity. Let us be a church that reflects the holy nature and character of the one that we profess to believe and to serve and to love. Amen? Jesus. Let us be a church that looks like Jesus. Amen? Let's pray. We love you, Lord. It's our desire to be obedient. It's our desire to be holy. It's not perfection. It's being distinct. The world does not need a church that looks just like the world. The world desperately needs a church that looks like Jesus. The world's looking for answers frantically. And the church has the answers. Jesus Christ. That's what the world needs to see. I pray that the church would never be bogged down and covered up. May Jesus never be hidden. May Jesus always be in plain sight. May Jesus be magnified for the world to see through his church. 
And may we play a, a very real part in that. Jesus, be glorified, be magnified through Calvary Napa. Lord, help us to purge the sin out of our lives, each and every one of us individually. We love you, Lord. Have your way in our lives and in this church. In Jesus' name, amen.